Hello and welcome. I'm Rachel Amaday and you are listening to The Spiritual Exercises. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you for being here. Um, I have been about, oh... I'm trying to think how long it's been almost a week, almost a week back from a trip to Israel and then a little short time in Paris with my son, Liam, who is 14 years old right now. Um, I took him because he had had multiple trips canceled due to COVID lockdowns that were really important trips for him that we had paid for, we had worked hard for. And then of course they got canceled. One trip got canceled twice. And so he had a heartbreaking 2020 um, and so this was a great way, I thought, to take him on a little adventure and also get a lot of history in because I'm homeschooling him right now. And boy, did we get some incredible history as well as just some incredible biblical experiences. So I have been... I started last week detailing one part of the trip. There is so much to talk about and to share with you all that I kind of have to split up my trip details. And we're going to do it with a little bit of a a Bible study as well today, which... um, all of the locations I got to visit in Israel have a biblical history attached to them, which makes that place so incredibly special and beautiful. And I just want to encourage you, if you have not gone, it is absolutely worth the sacrifice. It is worth the finances. It is it is worth it. Uh, you get to actually see these places that the Bible discusses. And it really, when you see it, It really does confirm the historical authenticity of what the Bible is talking about. Um, Plus, I just loved the people there. I really loved talking to them, getting to know them. They have a love for their country and an appreciation for how special of a place it is. And so they, they just gush when they talk about their country, when they talk about the different locations, when they talk about their own history, because a lot of the people over there have lineages that have been there for a very long time. And so it's just different than the United States, and it's different in this really incredible way. So if you haven't been, I would encourage you to go. Today, there are two areas that I got to visit that I thought we could expand on, and I could give you some photos and a Bible lesson and a history lesson. And um, those two locations are the Temple Mount and Jaffa or uh, Yafo. So let's start with when we visited the Western Wall. Now, In Israel, um, if you're not Muslim, you can't visit the Temple Mount at any time. And in fact, there's a lot of Muslims who want to make sure that no one but Muslims can visit the Temple Mount. It's interesting to me that in uh, the Quran, Jerusalem is never mentioned, not even one time. Jerusalem is mentioned hundreds of times in our Bible, but yet it's not even mentioned once in the most holy text of the Muslim people. And so you got to kind of, it's very strange, the agreement, the arrangement that they have over there. Now, when we were in Old Jerusalem, our tour guide took us to two checkpoints to get onto the Temple Mount, and he was so careful to point out that it's Israeli forces who are policing that only Muslims can go onto the Temple Mount. Now, other people can go onto the Temple Mount at specific times on specific days, but you can't get up there otherwise. And it's Israeli forces that are policing that. I thought that was fascinating. Um, it's really interesting how all those peoples live right on top of each other and work together over there right now. 
now at least. But it certainly feels like a powder keg situation. So I didn't get to go onto the Temple Mount. I did get to visit the Western Wall. And let's talk about the history of this particular location. So traditionally, we understand this is the site where Abraham took his son Isaac to be sacrificed. Now, if you don't know the story, um, in scripture, God calls Abraham and tells him to take his son, his only son, the son that he loves, the son that's the son of promise. It's through Isaac that Abraham is supposed to become a great people and great nation. And yet God says to Abraham, take your son and I want you to go up to Mount Moriah and you're going to sacrifice him. Now, Abraham understood sacrifice. How did he understand this without any scriptures being written down? We've talked about this in the past. There's a lot of understanding in people like Abraham, in people like um, uh, Adam and Eve and and uh, Cain and Abel. Um, They had an understanding of some of these biblical requirements. So Yeshua must have taught Adam and Eve in the garden, and there must have just been teaching orally that happened. But Abraham understood sacrifice. And so it says in Genesis 22, 2, take your son, your favorite one, Yitzchak, and I, I'm reading from the complete Jewish Bible, so we're using their real names here, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. Okay, so where is Moriah? How do we know that this is where the temple is built? Well, Second Chronicles 3.1 says this, then Shlomo, this is Solomon, that's his name, Shlomo, began to build the house of Hashem in Yerushalayim which is Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, where Hashem had appeared to his father David at the place which David had designated at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Okay, so we know Mount Moriah has this history where Abraham goes, and and if you don't, let me finish the story of Abraham and Isaac real quickly if you don't know it. Isaac goes with Abraham up the mountain. It's interesting because I I think Isaac knew what was happening because he asks his dad at one point, you know, where is our sacrifice that we're taking? I think he realized that he was the sacrifice. And when they got up, as Abraham was about to kill Isaac, a ram appears in the thorny thicket, the bushes uh, up there on Mount Moriah. And God says, you know, stops Abraham. And he says, the ram is basically the replacement. This, This is going to be what you sacrifice instead of your son. It's such a strange story. But if you understand Christ, you see all the parallels. You see that there was a crown of thorns placed on Christ's head, that he was the replacement for the promised nation who would fail, who would fail to keep the covenant with God, who would be given a certificate of divorce. He was the replacement for the promised son who who couldn't keep the covenant, right? And for all the people who needed that covering. And um, anyways, it's a beautiful story. You should go read it. But this is where we believe the temple ended up getting built by Solomon. Now, Solomon built the first temple. It was unfortunately destroyed 400 years later by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Now, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, Cyrus II, founder of the Achaemenid dynasty of Persia and conqueror of Babylonia, in 538 BCE issued an order allowing exiled Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Work was completed in 515 BCE. 
There's no known detailed plan of the second temple, which was constructed as a modest version of the original building. It was surrounded by two courtyards with chambers gates and a public square. It did not include the ritual objects of the first temple. Of special significance was the lock of the loss of the Ark itself, which is the Ark of the Covenant. Ritual, however, was elaborate and was conducted by well-organized families of priests and Levites. So only the Levitical priesthood was allowed to do service at the physical temple. So you will see even to this day, they've kept the lineage of the Levites so that when the next temple is rebuilt, they will know who can perform the temple services there. Um, you know, another thing to note is Solomon, the first temple, remember Solomon was considered one of the wealthiest men, if not the wealthiest man to have ever existed. And the temple was lush and lavish, and it was built to the exact specifications that God laid down in scripture. Um, and you know, it had these pieces of furniture in it. It had the menorah, it had the Ark of the Covenant, it had the table of showbread, it had these pieces and parts of what um, Moses wrote down were requirements of the holy place. And so the second temple built um, after Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and build it, didn't quite have everything, wasn't quite as beautiful, wasn't quite as elaborate as what Solomon was able to build, yet still they had the temple. This second temple is the one that Antiochus IV went into and desecrated. And that's where we have the story of the Maccabees and the revolts that took place and then the institution of the holiday of Hanukkah. If you don't understand that holiday, you can go back to a couple of my podcasts regarding Hanukkah and the story there and the history there. It's a well-documented history that has a lot of rich teaching that's also biblical Um it also, however, has some mythology around it, so you'll have to go back and listen to one of my podcasts to understand the difference between the history of it and the mythology. But then in 54 BCE, Crassus plundered the temple, and there's a rebuild of this second temple that happens with Herod the Great, starting in 20 BCE and lasting 46 years. This rebuilding is where we get the retaining walls around the mount and the remaining western wall that we see today. This is also obviously the temple that Jesus would have been familiar with. And, um, you know, we see Jesus encountering, um, there are multiple Herods, by the way, not just one, but encountering Herod in his story. Um now, I think that one, so, so the most memorable portion of my entire trip was, was visiting this Western Wall. And it's interesting, since I've returned, I've had so many Christians ask me, did you visit this site? Did you visit that site? Did you do this? Did you do that? And a lot of the sites are um, historical places where, you know, I'll say this. Catholics claim that one place is where one event happened, and then Protestants claim another place is where that event happened. And there's lots of debate about the locations of all these events, you know, these places you can go visit. You know, where exactly on the Jordan River did Jesus get baptized? Where exactly is the tomb that, you know, he was resurrected from? Is it actually in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, or is it this garden tomb that's a little further out, you know? There's debates around these locations, but there's not a debate about where the temple was. And, and when you go to the Western Wall, it feels like, again, I've said this about the whole city of Jerusalem, it feels like it has its own heartbeat or that it is the center, the heartbeat of the entire world. And when you go to the Western Wall, it feels like it just intensifies that God's eyes are directly 
on you. I don't know how to describe it, but there's so many people there praying and I was so overwhelmed in the presence of this, um, being in this location where I know that God has been worshiped in the holiness that he has demanded, at least for short periods of time. And that this is also a place that is supposed to be representative of the temple that we are a place where holy services took place that we're supposed to pay attention to so we know how to conduct the holy service in our hearts and to keep those things clean, to keep our mind and hearts clean. And I just, it's a pretty overwhelming location. And here's one reason why we have in Second Chronicles uh, 6, I believe, a prayer of dedication given by Solomon. And I want to just end this portion of the podcast before we move into Jaffa Um, I want to read, it's a long prayer, but I want you to hear it. This prayer of dedication for the first temple, because it includes you. You're going to get to a section in this prayer where he is praying for the nations who go to pray in Jerusalem, the nations who show up at the temple to pray there. And he asks God something very specific on your behalf for the day that you go to pray at the temple. So I want you to pay attention to this, um, and, and understand the importance of Solomon's prayer at this first temple, temple dedication. The Bible says this, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now he had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had placed it in the center of the outer court. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. He said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You've kept your promise to your servant, David, my father. With your mouth, you have promised and with your hand, you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant, David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me according to my law, as you have done. And now, Lord, the God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant, servant David come true. But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet, Lord my God, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath, and they come and swear the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing down on their heads what they have done, and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with their innocence. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to them and their ancestors. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, 
then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when enemies besiege them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people Israel, be aware of their afflictions and pains, and spreading out their hands toward this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts. For you alone know the human heart, so that they will fear you and walk in obedience to you all the time they live in the land you gave our ancestors. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward this city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and pray toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you've chosen and toward the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests, Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David, your servant. Amen and amen. And what a prayer. And what a prayer he made for us, for the foreigner who might not belong to Israel, but go from a distant land. Now, I will say this, you know, what happens with Christ? When you come into the family, you become Israel. And so these prayers are all for you, right? But I just thought there are foreigners who travel just like me and they go and they pray at this place. And Solomon's prayers that God would hear from heaven and, and hear the prayers of the people and fulfill them into the glory of his name. This is an amazing prayer, an amazing promise. And it, uh, my friends, it is worth the journey. Um, what also, you know, Solomon's prayer is so, has so much foresight, right? It's prophetic, actually. He knew that the people would turn away, that they would be scattered, that they would be without their temple, that they would be alone in these other lands, that they would fail. But that he asked that God have mercy on them when they decide to return. And that mercy relates to our next location. And so I want to talk to you about Jaffa or Yafo. This is considered the oldest port in the world. Um, and according to Encyclopedia Britannica, it's an old Canaanite city. Jaffa was taken by Thuti, general of Thutmose III of Egypt in the 15th century BCE and became a provincial capital during the Egyptian New Kingdom. 
The Israelite kings David and Solomon occupied it, the latter using it as the port for landing Lebanon timber that floated down the coast from Tyre. And I wonder if that timber, that le- you know, the cedars of Lebanon, if that was part of the temple construction, actually, if those um, cedars came in through that port, it's probably possible. So what the other important piece that happened at this port is we believe that this is where Jonah might have left um, to get on a boat to uh, basically escape God's um, command in his life. And, you know, if you don't know the story of Jonah, Jonah was considered a very famous, important prophet. And God asks him to go to this place, this location, Nineveh. And the Ninevites have been horrible to the Jews. They're an awful people. They don't know. They don't even know how awful they are, but they are constantly in sin and in violation against God's Torah. And God wants to send Jonah there to tell them to repent and to change. And of course, because of how awful they are and how awful they've been to the Jews, Jonah is like, you have got to be kidding me. No way. I'm not going. Those people are wicked and evil. They don't deserve your mercy. They don't deserve anything from you. Absolutely not. And so he decides to go somewhere else. He gets on a boat. Well, of course, as he's on the boat, there's so many storms and so many issues. And the other guys on the boat are kind of religious. And they're like, something spiritual is happening here. Something is wrong. We're going to have to start throwing cargo overboard. We're going to die out here. And Jonah fesses up and he admits, you know, it's me, you know, God's angry with me because I'm trying to run away, you know, basically from this call in my life to go to Nineveh. And so Jonah basically gets thrown overboard and he gets swallowed by a great whale. And I'm sure you all know the story, but one interesting little tidbit about the story, the Ninevites, um, I believe worshiped a God called Dagon and Dagon was the fish God. And so the, even the Catholic high priest hats today that you see that have the two sides that kind of jut out that look like, it's almost like if you see it from the same shape, shape like a shark's head or, you know, like a whale's head, there's two two mouths that go up, that was the exact pretty much uh, head fitting, not only in Egypt, but in um, the priests, high priest of Dagon. This was a fish god. And so do you think that when it's, it's heard in Nineveh that Jonah got spat out after three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, got spat out on the shores by a giant great fish, do you think the people of Nineveh were ready to listen to him? I think they probably were. They're like, oh, the great fish has spit out this prophet. What does this prophet have to say to us? We better listen. And so God was so intentional about even how he brought Jonah about to coming to the Ninevites and and preaching repentance to them. And to Jonah's great dismay, the people of Nineveh listen. And they're not people of Israel. These are outsiders that God is bringing into knowledge of the Torah. And And the people listen and they repent and they change. And boy, does that rub Jonah the wrong way. He is pissed. Um, And I'm just reminded that God's mercies are so much greater than ours. He is merciful from generation to generation. He remembers his promises and he loves people in a way we don't. We are so 
quick to hold grudges. I think about our prayers today and how much are our prayers about ourselves. They're not like Solomon's prayer where they're praying for the futures of people and for mercies, the mercies of God over future generations. Oftentimes we are constantly just so self-involved, but God's mercy is for all people. And he's been so gracious to us. He's been so patient with you, hasn't he? If you think about your history with the Lord, do you not see a pattern of patience and mercy? And even in the times where he is redirecting you or, um, you know, punishing you. I mean, I, I believe that God is like a father. You know, he will redirect us. He will push us in order to grow us. Even in those moments, can't you look back and see how God grew you and changed you and got you one step closer to being like him? You know, he is so good and he has always been that good. And so these two locations are just a reminder of God's great, incredible mercy and his faithfulness to his promises to us. And even his faithfulness to a group of outsiders, the Ninevites, who God said they haven't had the right chance yet. I want them to have a chance to know me and sends, you know, stubborn, unhappy Jonah to do the task, uses a picture that the Ninevites would have recognized in this giant fish in order to deliver the message. I mean, that is literally how good of a God we have. And he does the same with us today. He gives us signs, signals, messaging in ways that we can understand if we would just open our eyes to what he's doing. So those are the two locations from my trip I I wanted to share today. I have more. Hopefully I'll be back with one more uh, installment of my trip to Israel next week. Um, But in the meantime, I hope you're blessed today. Please reach out with any prayer requests and uh, I'll be back.